Chapter 14 of The Autobiography of a Thief. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Autobiography of a Thief by Hutchins Hapgood. Chapter 14 Out of Hell. I left Enamora Asylum for the Criminal Insane on a cold winter morning. I had my tickets to New York, but not a cent of money. Relatives or friends are supposed to provide that. I was happy, however, and I made a resolution, which this time I shall keep, never to go to stir or to the pipe house again. I knew very well that I could never repeat such an experience without going mad in reality, or dying. The first term I spent in stir I had my books and a new life of beauty and thought to think about. Once and for all I had had that experience. The thought of going through prison routine again, the damp cells, the poor food, the habits contracted with the madhouse at the end. No, that could never be for me again. I felt this as I heard the loons yelling goodbye to me from the windows. I looked at the gloomy building and said to myself, I've left hell, and I'll shovel coal before I go back. All the ideas that brought me here I will leave behind. In the future, I will try to get all the good things out of life that I can, the really good things, a glimpse of which I got through my books. I think there is still sufficient gray matter in my brain for that. I took the train for New York, but stopped off at Plattsburgh and Albany to deliver some messages from the poor unfortunates to their relatives. I arrived in New York at twelve o'clock at night, having had nothing to eat all day. My relatives and friends had left the station, but were waiting up for me in my brother's house. This time, I went straight to them. My father had died while I was in the pipe house, and now I determined that I would be, at last, a kind son to the mother who had never deserted me. I think she felt that I had changed, and the tears that flowed from her eyes were not all from unhappiness. She told me about my father's last illness, and how cheerful he had been. I bought him a pair of new shoes a month before he died, she said. He laughed when he saw them, and said, What extravagance, to buy shoes for a dying man! Living right among them, I met again, of course, many of my old companions in crime, and found that many of them had thought I was dead. It was only the other day that I met Al, driving a peddler's wagon. He, like me, had squared it. I thought you died in the pipe house, Jim, he said. This has happened to me a dozen times since my return. I had spent so much time in stir that the general impression among the guns at home seemed to be that I had gone up the escape. As a general thing, I found that guns who had squared it and become prosperous had never been very successful grafters. Some of the best boxmen and burglars in the business are now bartenders in saloons owned by former small fry among the dips. There are waiters now in saloons and concert halls on the Bowery who were far cleverer thieves than the men who employ them, and who are worth thousands. Hungry Joe is an instance. Once, he was king of confidence men, and on account of his great plausibility got in on a noted person on one occasion for several thousand dollars. And now... He will beg many a favor of men he would not look at in the old days. A grafter is jealous, suspicious, and vindictive. I had always known that, but never realized it so keenly as I have since my return from the madhouse. Above everything else, a grafter is suspicious, whether he has squared it or not, suspicious of his pals and of everybody else. When my old pals saw that I was not working with them, they wondered what my private graft was. When I told them I was on the level and was looking for a job, they either laughed or looked at me with suspicion in their eyes. 
They saw I was looking good, well dressed, and they could not understand it. They put me down, some of them, as a stool pigeon. They all feel instinctively that I am no longer with them, and most of them have given me the frosty mitt. Only the bums who used to be grafters sail up to me in the Bowery. They have not got enough sense left even for suspicion. The dips who hang out in the thieves' resorts are beginning to hate me, not because I want to injure them, for I don't, but because they think I do. I told one of them, an old friend, that I was engaged in some literary work. He was angry in an instant and said, You doormat thief! You couldn't get away with a coal scuttle. One day I was taking the editor of this book through the Bowery, pointing out to him some of my old resorts, when I met an old pal of mine who gave me the glad hand. We had a drink, and I, who was feeling good, started in to jolly him a little. He had told me about an old pal of ours who had just fallen for a book and was confined in a Brooklyn jail. I took out a piece of copy paper and took the address, intending to pay a visit to him, for everybody wants sympathy. What a look went over that grafter's face. I saw him glance quickly at the editor and then at me, and I knew that he had taken alarm and probably thought we were Pinkerton men or something as bad. I tried to carry it off with a laugh, for the place was full of thieves, and told him I would get him a job on a newspaper. He answered hastily that he had a good job in the pool room and was on the level. He started in to try to square it with my companion by saying that he adored a man who had a job. A little while afterwards he added that he hated anybody who would graft after he had got an honest job. Then, to wind up his little game of squaring himself, he ended by declaring that he had recently obtained a very good position. That was one of the incidents that queered me with the more intelligent thieves. He spread the news, and whenever I meet one of that gang on the Bowery, I get the cold shoulder. A gun is so mighty quick to grow suspicious. A grafter who follows the business for years is a study in psychology, and his two most prominent characteristics are fear and suspicion. If some stool pigeon tips him off to the police and he is sent to stir, he invariably suspects the wrong person. He tells his friends in stir that Al done him, and pretty soon poor Al, who may be an honest thief, is put down as a rat. If Al goes to stir, very often the result is a cutting match between the two. There are many convicts in prison who lie awake at night concocting stories about other persons, accusing them of the vilest of actions. If the prisoner can get hold of a Sunday newspaper, he invariably reads the society news very carefully. He can tell more about the 400 than the swells will ever know about themselves, and he tells very little good of them. Such stories are fabricated in prison and repeated out of it. When I was in Auburn, Stir, I knew a young fellow named Sterling, as straight a thief as ever did time. He had the courage of a grenadier and objected to everything that was mean and petty. He therefore had many enemies in prison, and they tried to make him unpopular by accusing him of a horrible crime. The story reached my ears, and I tried to put a stop to it, but I only did him the more harm. When Sterling heard the tale, he knocked one of his traducers senseless with an iron bar. Tongues wagged louder than ever, and one day he came to me and talked about it, and I saw a wild look in his eyes. His melancholia started in about that time, and he began to suspect everybody, including me. His enemies put the keepers against him, and they made his life almost unbearable. Generally, the men that tip off keepers to the alleged violent character of some convict are the worst stool pigeons in the prison. Even the Messiah could not pass through this world without arousing the venom of the crowd. How in the name of common sense, then, could Sterling, or I, or any other grafter expect otherwise than to be traduced? 
It was the politicians who were the cause of Christ's trials, and the politicians are the same today as they were then. They have very little brains, but they have the low cunning which is the first attribute of the human brute. They pretend to be the people's advisers, but pile up big bank accounts. Even the convict scum that come from the lower wards of the city have all the requisites of the successful politician. Nor can one say that these criminals are of low birth, for they trace their ancestors back for centuries. The fact that convicts slander one another with glee and hear with joy of the misfortunes of their fellows is a sign that they come from a very old family, from the wretched human stock that demanded the crucifixion of Christ. This evil trait, suspiciousness, is something I should like to eliminate from my own character. Even now I am afflicted with it. Since my release I often have the old feeling come over me that I am being watched, and sometimes without any reason at all. Only recently I was riding on a Brooklyn car when a man opposite happened to glance at me two or three times. I gave him an irritated look. Then he stared at me to see what was the matter, I suppose. That was too much, and I asked him, with my nerves on edge, if he had ever seen me before. He said no, with a surprised look, and I felt cheap, as I always do after such an incident. A neighbor of mine has a peculiar habit of watching me quietly whenever I visit his family. I know that he is ignorant of my past, but when he stares at me I am rattled. I begin to suspect that he is studying me, wondering who I am. The other day I said to him irritably, Mr. K, you have a bad habit of watching people. He laughed carelessly, and I, getting hot, said, Mr. K, when I visit people, it is not with the intention of stealing anything. I left the house in a huff, and his sister, as I afterwards found, rebuked him for his bad manners. Indeed, I have lost many a friend by being over-suspicious. I am suspicious even of my family. Sometimes when I sit quietly at home with my mother in the evening, as has grown to be a habit with me, I see her look at me. I begin immediately to think that she is wondering whether I am grafting again. It makes me very nervous, and I sometimes put on my hat and go out for a walk just to be alone. One day when I was in stir, my mother visited me, as she always did when they gave her a chance. In the course of our conversation, she told me that on my release I had better leave the city and go to some place where I was not known. For, she said, your character, my boy, is bad. I grabbed her by the arm and exclaimed, Who is it that is circulating these damn stories about me? My poor mother merely meant, of course, that I was known as a thief, but I thought some of the other convicts had slandered me to her. It was absurd, of course, but the outside world cannot understand how suspicious a grafter is. I have often seen a man, who afterwards became insane, begin being queer through suspiciousness. Well, as I have said, I found the guns suspicious of me, when I told them I had squared it, or when I refused to say anything about my doings. Of course I don't care, for I hate the Bowery now and everything in it. Whenever I went, as I did several times to my editor, to a gun joint, a feeling of disgust passed over me. I pity my old pals, but they no longer interest me. I look upon them as failures. I have seen a new light, and I shall follow it. Whatever the public may think of this book, it has already been a blessing to me. For it has been honest work that I and my friend the editor have done together, and leads me to think that there may yet be a new life for me. I feel now that I should prefer to talk and associate with the meanest working men in this city than with the swellest thief. For a long time I have really despised myself. 
When old friends and relatives look at me askance, I say to myself, how can I prove to them that I am not the same man as I was in the past? No wonder the authorities thought I was mad. I have spent the best years of my life behind the prison bars. I could have made out of myself almost anything I wanted, for I had the three requisites of success, personal appearance, health, and I think some brains. But what have I done? After ruining my life, I have not even received the proverbial mess of pottage. As I look back upon my life, both introspectively and retrospectively, I do not wonder that society at large despises the criminal. I'm not trying to point out a moral or pose as a reformer. I cannot say that I quit the old life because of any religious feeling. I am not one of those who have reformed by finding Jesus at the end of a gas pipe which they were about to use as a blackjack on a citizen, just in order to finger his long green. I only saw by painful experience that there is nothing in a life of crime. I ran up against society and found that I had struck something stronger and harder than a stone wall. But it was not that alone that made me reform. What was it? Was it the terrible years I spent in prison? Was it the confinement in a madhouse where I dearly saw old pals of mine become driveling idiots? Was it my reading of the great authors and my becoming acquainted with the beautiful thoughts of the great men of the world? Was it a combination of these things? Perhaps so, but even that does not entirely explain it, does not go deep enough. I have said that I am not religious, and I am not. And yet, I have experienced something indefinable, which I suppose some people might call an awakening of the soul. What is that, after all, but the realization that your way of life is ruining you, even to the very foundation of your nature? Perhaps, after all, I am not entirely lacking in religion, for certainly the character of Christ strongly appeals to me. I don't care for creeds, but the personality of the Nazarene, when stripped of the aroma of divinity, appeals to all thinking men. I care not whether they are atheists, agnostics, or skeptics. Any man that has understanding reveres the life of Christ, for he practiced what he preached and died for humanity. He was a perfect specimen of manhood, and had developed to the highest degree that trait which is lacking in most all men, the faculty humane. I believe that a time comes in the lives of many grafters when they desire to reform. Some do reform, for good and all, and I shall show the world that I am one of them. But the difficulties in the way are great, and many fall again by the wayside. They come out of prison marked men. Many observers can tell an ex-convict on sight. The lockstep is one of the causes. It gives a man a peculiar gait which he will retain all his life. The convicts march close together and cannot raise their chests. They have to keep their faces turned towards the screw. Breathing is difficult, and most convicts suffer in consequence from catarrh and a good many from lung trouble. Walking in lockstep is not good exercise and makes the men nervous. When the convict is confined in his cell, he paces up and down. The short turn is bad for his stomach, and often gets on his mind. The short walk will always have control of me. I cannot sit down now to eat or write without jumping up every five minutes in order to take that short walk. I become so used to it that I do not want to leave the house, for I can pace up and down in my room. I can take that small stretch all day long and not get tired, but if I walk a long straight distance, I get very much fatigued. When I wait for a train, I always begin that short walk on the platform. 
I've often caught myself walking just seven feet one way, then turning around and walking seven feet in the opposite direction. Another physical mark, caused by a criminal life rather than a long sojourn in stir, is an expressionless cast of countenance. The old grafter never expresses any emotions. He has schooled himself until his face is a mask, which betrays nothing. A much more serious difficulty in the way of reform is the ex-convict's health, which is always bad if a long term of years has been served. Moreover, his brain has often lost its equilibrium and powers of discernment. When he gets out of prison, his chance of being able to do any useful work is slight. He knows no trade, and he is not strong enough to do hard day labor. He is given only ten dollars when he leaves stir, with which to begin life afresh. A man who has served a long term is not steady above the years until he has been at liberty several months, and what can such a man do with ten dollars? It would be cheaper for the state in the end to give an ex-convict money enough to keep him for several months, for then a smaller percentage would return to stir. It would give the man a chance to make friends, to look for a job, and to show the world that he is earnest. A criminal who is trying to reform is generally a very helpless being. He was not, to begin with, the strongest man mentally, and after confinement is still less so. He is preoccupied, suspicious, and a dreamer, and when he gets a glimpse of himself in all his naked realities, is apt to become depressed and discouraged. He is easily led, and certainly no man needs a good friend as much as the ex-convict. He is distrusted by everybody, is apt to be pipped off wherever he goes, and finds it hard to get work which he can do. There are hundreds of men in our prisons today who, if they could find somebody who would trust them and take a genuine interest in them, would reform and become respectable citizens. That is where the Tammany politician, whom I have called Senator Wetcoin, is a better man than the majority of reformers. When a man goes to him and says he wants to square it, he takes him by the hand, trusts, and helps him. Wetcoin does not hand him a soup ticket and a tract, nor does he hold on tight to his own watch chain, fearing for his red super, hastily bidding the ex-gun to be with Jesus. End of chapter 14